Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Welcome to another I Start Research Perspectives podcast from Dementia Researcher, which brings different perspectives on a particular research topic, including the voice of someone living with dementia and the words of a researcher. Several researchers believe that cognitive stimulation can help increase our cognitive reserve and reduce our risk of developing dementia. This stimulation can come in many forms and shapes in our education, work, and leisure activities. On our virtual couch is my co-host and dear friend, Clara Dominguez, a brilliant neurologist who certainly took the concept of continuing education too seriously in taking the PhD years to the long-suffering final minutes. My name is Fernando Agutzoli, a Brazilian journalist and devoted grandson. And my personal interest in dementia began when my grandmother and best friend was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, an event that completely transformed our lives and pushed me to see the world in the way I had never ever considered before. Aware of the impact that the disease would bring to our lives, I decided to drop out of college and quit my job to be with her until the very end. For years, I heard other sayings about my grandma diagnosis, but how if she did the crosswords every day for 50 years? And that started to gain my attention. Right, Clara? Well, welcome. Thank you, Fernando. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, and greetings, everyone. My name is Clara Dominguez, and I work as a clinical neurologist in Spain. I have a personal interest in cognitive disorders since I started studying medicine a long time ago. And now as a clinician, I see every day people with cognitive issues and more and more, I see their families or people with a family history of dementia that come to my clinic quite worried about their brain health. And they continually ask me what they can do now to prevent future cognitive decline. So cognitive stimulation, as Fernando suggested, is a key factor in risk reduction. So we should talk about that. Today, we are going to connect two perspectives on this same topic. They come from very different viewpoints and backgrounds, but are nonetheless inseparable. The first from Pam Montana, who was diagnosed with younger onset Alzheimer's disease in 2016. And then Elisa Resende, a neurologist and researcher focused on this topic. So Fernando is going to start with the interview. First of all, it's an honor to have you on board. I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective, but I would love if you could briefly tell the audience a little about your story, Pam. Sure, absolutely. So I worked at Intel for um, over... 16 years and prior to that I was always in technology and I was managing a sales organization and one of the things that I needed to do was to listen to what was going on with the engineers which I'm not and make sure that my staff knew what was going on so that they could talk to their customers about what new opportunities there were and so initially I would just jot down a couple of different you know a couple little notes and then I, when in my staff meeting, I would go ahead and, you know, tell them what was going on. And then as time went on, and I think this started in about um, 20, maybe 14, 
I realized that I couldn't hold the information anymore. And so when the uh, when the when the technical folks were giving me all the information, I actually had to write down word for word what they were saying, and then that way I could share the information with my staff. So that was like the first thing that happened to me. And Alzheimer's was never on my radar. We don't have any Alzheimer's in our family. And then a couple years later, my husband and I were on vacation, and I asked him three times in a row where we were going to dinner. And I remember he pulled the car over and he said, do you know, you've asked me that question three times. And I said, no, I, you know, I thought I asked once and, you know, where are we going to dinner kind of a thing. So that started us down the path of trying to figure out what was going on with me. And because I'm so verbal and chatty and, you know, just been in sales my entire life, um, I'm a huge extrovert. A lot of people dismissed me. Uh, even when I went to my doctor, my GP to tell him that, you know, things were changing. And I told him the story I just mentioned. He said to me, well, you don't look like you have Alzheimer's. And I was like, okay, I don't know anything about Alzheimer's. What's it supposed to look like? So that was like a big kind of blow to me. But anyway, long story short, then I got, I did get directed to the neurologist. And then I did get referred to UC San Francisco Memory and Aging Center. And they're the ones that um, helped me. They gave me the radioactive dye and they looked at, at, um, at my brain. And I got my diagnosis in 2016. Well, as you know, this podcast is focused on cognitive stimulation. Can you tell us about how prior to your diagnosis, you kept cognitively active, either through your education, work, or like my grandma, for instance, did you have hobbies like crossword puzzles or literature in your life before the diagnosis? Yeah, I've always been, I'll say crafty. I'll use that word. I always have, um, I, I knitted, I have knitted a lot. I actually made all my clothes and clothes for my children growing up. So I'm very, I am kind of, I'll say crafty. I'm not, you know, great at it, but, you know, knitting and sewing and you know, cross stitch and things like that. So I've been doing that for a while. And then I'm an avid reader. So I do believe that reading, whether it's on Audible or a book, I think that that really does stimulate your brain. And then I'm super active. I've always been active. And, you know, I, I like to get out and about and have traveled all over the world and like to, you know, like to get my body pumping so that the helps my brain. <laughs> well, like you said, Alzheimer's was never in our radar actually when my grandma started to show some symptoms and it was quite well I would not say funny of course but it was weird in the beginning because uh, I was used to see my grandma reading all my life and doing the crosswords puzzles and well all the other activities that I believed they were protecting my grandma, as everyone was saying, they were protecting my grandma's aging process. So it was quite weird. And well, you said you're used to, you used to neat and my grandma tried to teach me as well, but well, I, I, I never got to learn anything. But anyway, you can try as well. I can, I can go to US, you can try to teach me something. But well, some of my grandma's habits and hobbies ended up running into trouble at different stages from diagnosis to the last stage of the disease. But we always look for ways to adapt, which I think mm -hmm. is very important. How you keep cognitively active since your diagnosis and how are you coping with these changes in your hobbies? 
Yeah, I've, you know, I just do what, what makes me happy. I mentioned that earlier about, you know, the importance of doing what you enjoy. And I just, if it's too difficult, I get frustrated and that's not helpful. That's not helpful for my brain. That's not helpful for my mental health. So again, I really just try to do things that, that work for me. And most recently I discovered the adult paint by number um, paintings. And so um, on Amazon here in California, I'm able to order these canvases and they give you all this, all the paints and all of the brushes. And that's been really cool. That's something I'd never done before. I'm not an artist at all, but because you're painting by number, um, it's also very, you know, cognitively stimulating. You have to, you know, figure out what the color is. You have to figure out, you know, do, should you start at the top? Should you start at the bottom? And so things like that have been really, really helpful for me. And I've painted over two canvases. One of them is matted and framed and in our house. And another one is at my daughter's house. And I just ordered another one. So things like that are really, really helpful for me. And I think the most important thing is that people do, again, what they, what they enjoy. If you've never knitted before and you try to start knitting, especially if you don't have somebody to help you or you're not going to like a knitting school, it's, it's not easy. It's frustrating. And if you don't know how to use a sewing machine, like why would you, you know, why would you start that? So I, I, my, my thing is do, you know, what's interest, it interests you, you know, and that way you got your, you're having, your brain is happy, you're happy and, and make sure you just get outside and exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was quite hard to deal with my grandma's frustration with some activities that were for sure changing for her. And th that was quite a challenge for me because I was a teenager at the time. So I, I didn't know how to deal, how to cope with these um, changes as she was also learning. So yeah, it was quite a process for us. But for me, the thing that's changed the most uh, is my executive function. And so I used to be on my computer all the time. I mean, again, worked at Intel, been in technology my entire life. And now I'm a very big fan of my phone. I was gonna show you, but it doesn't matter because this isn't on TV, so cut that off. But anyway, um, I now I do everything on my phone and it's just so much easier for me. I, you know, I blog on it. I put all my calendar mm -hmm. stuff in there, all kinds of things. And so that's been something that's, that's kind of different for me. And some things with the executive function, just I just can't do. And I can't give you an example right now. It's not coming into my brain. But um, oh, I know one. I, I really can't do math in my head anymore. Now, granted, maybe some people never did math, but I was able to do math in my head. And I also have a pretty bad short-term memory. So whenever I'm having a conversation with somebody where they're talking about something that's important for me to know, like, when are you coming home? Or you know, when is, when are we going to lunch? I have to write it all down. And again, I put it in my phone and I put it in another hard calendar that's, you know, up on the wall. So those are some modifications that I've used that have been really, really helpful and keeps me, you know, still active and doing things that I can do. Oh, fantastic. You managed to adapt. And I think it's all about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I always go to sleep swearing that next week I will learn Italian, French, maybe programming or a music instrument. But well, let's say that just nothing yet. And can you give an advice for trying something new? Because I think a lot of people that are hearing now, whether diagnosed or not, 
uh, they are considering trying something new. And can you give some advice for us? Yeah, I think, you know, I kind of talked about it earlier. I think it's do what makes you happy, do what you enjoy. You know, if you want to learn to knit, there's a lot of ways to learn to knit. But if you don't have any artsy, crafty stuff, that's fine. You know, there's so many other things you can do. I mean, um, like I can't give you an example, but, you know, maybe you want to learn how to play football or something. I don't know, like just anything that's different from your normal routine and anything that you enjoy. Don't let somebody push it on you. Don't let them say like, oh, you should do crossword puzzles. Well, I don't do crossword puzzles. I don't like them. I've never done them. So there's no way I would ever do one of those because that it would be too frustrating for me. And that's not healthy for my brain. I need stuff that brings, you know, good energy to my head and to my into my brain. Well, that's that's absolutely great. So don't take people's opinion too seriously that that yeah, makes you, like you try something that you don't want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why would you do a puzzle if you hate puzzles just because someone's told you, told you it was going to be good for you? You know, exactly, do something right? else, make cookies, you know, cook, clean. I don't know. There's so many options that just, again, depend on where you live and, and what you enjoy. You know, you got to just dig deep in your heart and decide what's going to work for you. Exactly. That's, that's great. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not learning Spanish, Clara. I'm, I'm trying something <laughs> that I like. I will try Italian. Oh, so. God, I tried so hard. I tried Spanish so many times. I cannot even, I mean, Duolingo, I've done it all, you know, never mind. It wasn't, it wasn't doing good things in my brain because it was getting frustrated right and then that's not really healthy so I said no more Spanish I, I am with you <laughs> on that and just to finish here Pam uh, any message for early career researchers that you can give gosh researchers well just please keep all of the clinical trials going please keep working I just finished my second clinical trial at UCSF and I'm just so honored to be part of that because I know I'm going to be part of the cure I think you know, you guys are the smarty pants and we're not. So just keep pushing. And I know that at some point in time, we will find a cure. I know there are some things that I know that I'm doing that are helping me slow down. So, you know, without a cure, I'm just really banking on steps of doing what makes me happy every single day. And I have like a very strong faith and a very um, attitude. I'm super happy and friendly and all that other kind of stuff. And that's really important. So if you're in a relationship or if you're around people that are bringing you down, you need some new friends. It is not helpful at all whatsoever. All of that stuff really makes an impact on your brain and on your body and on your mood and everything else. Well, Pam, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and, and telling your personal perspective. That's so, so important for all of us working with the disease. So thank you very much. Clara, over to you. Thank you so much, Pam. It was amazing hearing your story. And thank you, Fernando. And talking about research and funding and young researchers, many researchers have explored the possibility or the fact that people who are cognitively active, whether through education, work, or leisure, um, have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So there's still a debate regarding what types of activities are, are important. They are important and how we can actually translate these research findings into our communities and our daily lives. So thank you so much, Dr. Resende, for joining us today.
I am sure our audience is eager to hear your opinion on this topic, your expert opinion, where there is still much discussion among researchers. So we are, we are eager to hear you. So uh, just for starters, so could you tell us about your research? What is it about? We are trying to understand um, whether or not illiterate adults, so people who didn't have the opportunity to study and to go to school when they were young, whether can, they can um, improve their cognitive reserve when they are older adults. So the idea is, not, is that it's never too late to engage in cognitively stimulating activities. And one cognitively stimulating activity is going to school. We know that, you know, all of us, we went to school for 12 years. I mean, we, did, we went like for 20 or 25, but most of people go to school for 12 years. And this is a very important uh, for your brain to increase your connectivities, to improve your memory, to improve your math skills, your executive function and everything. But some people, they didn't have this opportunity because they had to work, they worked in the rural areas and they didn't have the stimulus from their parents and they lived in low socioeconomic areas. So they, they, they couldn't. And now they are those older adults that are illiterate. And we believe that if you learn how to read and write when you are, when you are an adult, another adult, you can improve your cognitive reserve. So that's what we are trying to to prove now. So we are looking at those literate adults. They are going to school, like learning to read how to, to read and write. And we are looking at the brains and then we are looking at their memory. And then we hope to see that with school later in life, your memory improves and your connections uh, in your brain improves. And that like can act as a buffer to avoid the symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia to to start earlier, let's say, and then to avoid at least a part of the dementia in those um, populations, vulnerable populations. Well, that's amazing. And I'm also sure because I know some of my patients do that, that they also enjoy, have fun and make new friends, which is also important. So great, great research. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> And I, I think people will be uh, really interested in knowing this. What type of cognitively stimulating activities, uh, as far as you know, have been associated with a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So we know that, as Fernando mentioned, as Pam mentioned, you can do crosswords your whole life. You can work in a very high-level job, but you still can have Alzheimer's. So the cognitively stimulating activities, um, it it can prevent, but it's uh, only 40% or 30% of the cases. It's not only, but it's not everything. And also it can delay the onset of the disease. So it can delay up to eight years, the onset of the disease, but there is no specific activity. So any activity is good. What we know is that training, specific training it's not helpful, for example, memory training or, uh, you know, those exercises that you do on computer. So those um, repetitive exercises, they are not helpful, but any other cognitively stimulating activity, activity like reading, knitting, uh, playing cards, we do a lot in Brazil, and um, 
going out and traveling, um, everything like being socially active, those activities are proved to be helpful for avoiding at least part of the Alzheimer's disease and dementia cases. Great. So fun stuff, right? Not sitting mm -hmm. on a computer, just doing repetitive stuff. That's great news. And which are you, according to you, that, you know, so everybody can understand, but the biological mechanisms behind this. So wh why does this work? Yeah, so the biological mechanisms what, of what we call cognitive reserve which is this um, buffer we get when we do a lot of cognitively stimulating activities in our whole life. And then we have like more brain to spare, let's say, when the disease comes. So uh, the biological mechanisms are not fully understood yet. A lot of workers, a lot of um, researchers are working on that in the world, but some uh, po possibilities, some hypotheses are that, for example, people who are um, who have like a higher level of education, a higher level of occupation uh, skills, they, they their brains um, work like different. They have like different connections. For example, when they are doing a memory task, a different parts of the brain connects with each other. Whereas a person who is in a low level of educational, for example, another parts of the brain connect during that activity. And we think that, for example, that difference that difference in connectivity so how two parts of the brain speaks with each other um maybe it's like more resistant to the disease so the when you know the plaques and the tangles come from the Alzheimer's disease for example it can affect like one region and the person has another region that it's working still this is one and the other possibilities that People who are cognitively active their whole life from, you know, children, they keep like growing um, neurons in regions, for example, the hippocampus. So we know that the hippocampus can generate new neurons even in adulthood. This is another hypothesis, but all the hypotheses are very hard to prove. And those, you know, are only, um, things that we study because it's difficult, for example, to study a person in the childhood and then see the same person in the adulthood. So those are like um, associations we see in research, but it's hard to prove the causation. Very long follow-up, right? <laughs> the whole life. And then uh, when I see studies about this uh, topic on cognitive uh, reserve, I always wonder, uh, how can you say for sure that it is the cognitive activity and cognitive stimulation, and it is not all the other things that are normally um, associated with that? What I mean is that normally people that has more cognitive demanding jobs, that have the opportunity to remain more engaged, have hobbies, be more social, they normally also have maybe a higher income, more opportunities, different nutrition. So how can you tell if it's one thing or the other? Yeah, it's not only you that asks that question. Every researcher <laughs> asks that question and there is no answer. I mean, there is no way to separate those out. Usually they come together, low socioeconomic status, low poor nutritional status and low income and low education and a lower level of occupation. So it's, they are all together. 
And it's impossible to separate in research because we're not going to, you know, manipulate those factors. It's impossible. What we can do is like to look at the same level of socioeconomic status, for example, and some people have, you know, a higher level of education because they managed to overcome their uh, difficulties when they were young and then we can see differences, but it's very difficult to tell. And every time I present my results and I see people uh, talking or other researchers talking about this team, we always get the same question, how you separate out? We can't. So we, we, we are just like studying everything. And we, we used to say that, you know, literacy or education and occupation, they are uh, proxies of everything that happened in your brain, like socioeconomic, like trauma and uh, difficulties in your childhood. They present as um, like a occupation, a high occupational level or something like that, or low occupational level. And then this is the way we can measure. Um, this in research but it's very difficult to separate yeah totally agree <laughs> and um yeah a little bit related with that i actually work as i said in spain but it's a rural area so um, the most part of my patients are actually they don't, they don't have a high cultural level as we understand that they don't they don't have a high they don't read a lot they don't are they are not pencil and paper people, okay? But when you talk to them, they have a huge knowledge, for example, regarding farming or plants or traditional uh, culture. So um, I wonder all the time, does this type of knowledge also count to prevent cognitive impairment? Yes, for sure it counts, but it's very hard to measure in research. So again, it's difficult to prove in research that kind uh, of knowledge, like being um, uh, like avoiding the risk of Alzheimer's disease, let's say. What we can do is, for example, what, there are some um, there are some work um, like in blue zones. I don't know. I don't know if you heard about that. So blue zones are regions in the world that the level of the rates of um, Alzheimer's disease is very low, and some. Those some of those zones they have you know a lot of knowledge that is not paper and pencil, and that counts for sure. But it's hard to to measure in research. So that's hard to prove and to say how much. But and it's hard to pass on. So for example, if you're going to do an intervention, and how are you going to say you know you can you can go to those uh, regions and learn all that, but it's hard to to plan an intervention to use that to prevent Alzheimer's disease, you know what I mean? So it's easier, for example, to increase the level of education if the level is, is like formal education, if the level is low. But it's for sure counts, but it's hard to, to measure and to prove it in research. Okay, so I guess it's kind of a knowledge that is underrepresented in research, right? For sure, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and just, uh, I think we, we are coming to an end, but I wouldn't like to finish this without asking you, uh, just also for particular interest in my case, if there is any particular age in which is very important to remain cognitively active, or is it also useful to do it later in life? I mean, I'm just asking if it's never too late, or we should do it earlier. Pam uh, Montana said, you should always stay active. Even if you are, you know, no matter the age you are, and 
after the cognitive, cognitive impairment has started, it's even more important. So there is no particular age since you were a child and then in adulthood in your occupation, your leisure activities, and then you, when you were young, like keeping doing voluntary work and keeping um, active. And then of course, when the cognitive uh, impairment start because it keeps your mind working like Pam said. And so there is some research showing that people who retire, people who are retired, they have higher rates of Alzheimer's disease. You know, so it's important to, to keep active all the time, the, your whole life. Okay, so we can never stop working, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, Always well. studying and working. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining us today, everyone. Uh, I think this has been uh, eye-opening. And I think most of us will start tomorrow, at least me, try to engage in more cognitive activities. I actually, I think I will go for the number painting. <laughs> I think that must be super relaxing as well. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but well, thank you for joining and thank you to all our listeners. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.